Mindfulness Mode, Episode 43. Do you want to live life in fear and anxiety, or do you want to live life in love and compassion? Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I want to challenge you today. If you know anyone whose life would be improved with mindfulness, to share this podcast with them. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Jiro Taylor on the line today. Hey, Jiro, are you in mindfulness mode? I sure am. Awesome. Jiro Taylor is an adventurer from the heart. He loves surfing, he loves skiing, exploring, and digging deep into the philosophy of peak performance. Jiro is fascinated to learn about what drives others to satisfy their hunger for peak performance. And he does just that as part of his podcast called Flow State Performance. Jiro is an avid meditator and a mindfulness enthusiast based in Manly, New South Wales, Australia. Hey, Jiro, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Tell us how you got interested in living the exciting lifestyle that you live. Sure, Bruce. So basically, I guess it was the natural uh, emergence from, from my life growing up. I grew up uh, very much outdoors. I was always playing outside. And as soon as I could, like I left my hometown as soon as I finished high school and I went straight to the mountains in France and I, you know, got a ski bum job and I just taught myself how to snowboard. And that was the beginning. I was 18 years old and uh, yeah, I just snowboarded every day and I was just exploring the mountains and, and yeah, that was the start of it. And since then I've lived in eight different countries. I've taught myself how to surf. I've done a lot of different sort of mountain based and ocean based uh, adventure activities I go camping like every other weekend with a, with a good bunch of friends. And uh, to me, having adventure is what it's all about. Oh, yeah. And I love skiing too. Absolutely love it. I never did snowboarding, but I love skiing. So I can really, I can really share your feel for the spirit of the adventure. So tell me where meditation became part of your life. When did that start uh, moving into what you did? Sure. So I guess throughout my teenage years and my whole time through college I was pretty distracted by you know partying and just being a teenager and being a being in my early 20s and I really had no sense of mind control I had no sense of inner development work it was just what not on my radar at all and then I after I graduated from college I moved to Japan for two years and I studied I was basically an English teacher over there it was an awesome position I got to teach Japanese kids English and hang out with them and learn about their culture and I just immersed myself in Japanese culture while I was there and at the end of my road there was a there was a a monastery or a temple and I just wandered in one day just curious and there was a Japanese monk there who who ran the temple and he invited me in we couldn't speak each other's language but he invited me in to, to sit And um, I sat there, my first meditation session ever in my entire life was a two and a half hour meditation session, sat side by side with Buddhist, with Zen monks. And I didn't have a clue what was going on. They couldn't communicate to me. I was just sort of watching what was going on. And uh, it was, I don't know if you've experienced this in, in, in Zen meditation, but it's often quite strict. Um, You can have, you can choose to put your hand up if you're feeling distracted 
you can put your hand up and that is a signal to to the guy leading the meditation to come over with a stick and actually like hit you with the stick around your back and this is my first taste of meditation i was just didn't know what was going on and these guys were just getting smacked over the back by a two by four and i was just like what the hell is going on but then it was the, it, it really intrigued me. It really, it really sort of was the, the emergence. It was the planting of a seed in me. I could see that this monk had a very unique energy about himself. I could see that he was very centered. And I could see that his, his focus was unbelievably still and direct. And it got me studying. I went home that evening and I just started Googling Zen Buddhism and meditation. And, and I just put myself on a practice. And I would go back and forth to the monastery. And those two years in Japan was really the beginning of, of a, what has now been a 15-year practice. Well, that is really, really fascinating, you know, that that was your first experience. And there they were, you know, hitting <laughs> hitting some of the people <laughs> practicing. Man, you must have been quite an eye-opener for you. Yeah, the what I learned later on was that the the whole hitting thing it's not designed to provoke pain or anything i did some research into it and you know they don't hit them that hard it's actually if if you're a practitioner and you're sat there and you just cannot you just have a a repetitive thought that just keeps on coming up and you just can't get into stillness then you can basically ask for assistance and this 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 action of I guess it's more like a symbolic gesture than anything, but this action of getting a quick smack over the back with <laughs> with a two by four <laughs> is more of like a symbolic line in the sand, and it's like okay, now I am here, now is the here and now. So it was a it was a huge eye opener, and I got really like fascinated by the whole culture, the whole aesthetic of of Buddhism, um, and the simplicity of it, the minimalism, the the mannerisms of the Japanese people um, who have, you know, that, that whole culture has been influenced by Zen Buddhism to a huge degree. And you can see it in their neat and tidy houses. You can see it in their customs and their rituals and how polite they are, their reverence for elders. It really has imbued the whole of Japanese culture with something quite beautiful and unique. Okay, so Jiro, tell Mindful Tribe where you went from there, from that experience, and how did mindfulness and meditation become an everyday part of your life? Sure, so those two years in Japan, I practiced every day, and I was really experiencing wonderful things. When when I look back, those are two of the most wonderful years of my life. What happened after that was that I went to... I went back to London, which is where I was living, and for one reason or another, I got um, caught into the corporate world, um, into the rat race. Like my, I had friends who were two years ahead of me. You know, I'd had these two years in Japan learning about Zen Buddhism, and these guys had been climbing the, the ladder, and they were two years ahead of me. And, and my like, my conditioned competitiveness really got me going. So I basically threw myself headlong into a corporate career. I worked in the finance industry. And it was um, the start of two years of my life where it was the complete opposite. I didn't meditate. I had no practice. I was just focused purely on uh, building my career, earning money, and, and doing well. And you know what, Bruce? It was two of the most 
unhappy time years of my life to be honest like I was super successful on one hand like I earned a hell of a lot of money but I was very unbalanced and I became very unhealthy I became very overweight and I started caring about stuff like material possessions and all these things that previously I had no care for so I quit that world after two years and um, I went to live in Indonesia with my surfboards for for a year and it was during that time that I I picked up my practice again and I started meditating every day and practicing yoga every day. And uh, really having the, the, the life experience of being able to balance out and observe how those two years in Japan where I was meditating every day, contrasting with the two years in the corporate world where I had no meditation practice and I could really see the stark difference in my thought processes, in my well-being, not just in my mental health but in my physical health as well. And it was a it was a one, I guess in hindsight, it was a wonderful experience to have at such a young age to be able to realize the power of having a personal practice. So that was when, that was the wake-up call for me, when I, um, those two years in the corporate world, and that's when it really became entrenched into a personal practice. Right. Well, you really have had some contrasting experiences, that's for sure. So Indonesia took you to another level, and then that was a couple of years. Then what happened? Okay, so I basically was in Indonesia and I traveled the world and I traveled the world with my snowboard and surfboards and what was happening was that I had experienced what I now know as flow when I was surfing and when I was snowboarding and for those who are unfamiliar, flow is a psychological term actually, well I mean I'll get into the philosophy of flow in a second. But psychologists call flow the state of optimal consciousness where we perform our best and feel our best. And everyone out there, everybody who's listening has experienced a flow state. Um, you know, if you observe children in play, they're in a flow state. Um, if you have been in a state of immersion where you felt completely absorbed by the activity that you're doing and time has just flown by, then that's a flow state. Um, so all of us know what flow is, but I was experiencing a lot of flow when I was surfing and I was experiencing the same sensation when I was meditating, when I was practicing yoga. And the dots in my, in, in my life began to be joined. I was, you know, nobody, no, I hadn't read anything about this, but, some, but basically I was having a, an experience of optimal consciousness while I was surfing and I was having that same experience while I was meditating. Therefore, the conclusion I came to was that this flow state while I'm surfing or snowboarding is a form of meditation. What I later learned was, was that the same, um, very similar um, neurological processes are going on when we're in a flow state as when we're in a, a mindful or a meditative state. And so I built on this and read all I could and researched and researched and researched and practiced, practiced, practiced until I reached the stage where I was like, well, I'm going to dedicate my life to this. And a couple of years ago, I set up um, my company, which is called Flow State Collective. And really, Flow State Collective is dedicated. My, my purpose, my quest in life is to help people tune in to a level of being, a level of awareness that is below the thinking mind, that is pure and innate and authentic, not subject to conditioning. This is the state of being that uh, meditators um, like yourself, Bruce, are very familiar with, but it's also the state that people who experience a lot of flow states are familiar with. And so through Flow State Collective, 
I aim to join the dots and to let people know that if you're engaged in something that you love, whether it's skiing or whether it's gardening or whether it's cooking, if you're engaged in an activity like that and you do it with the energy of mindful awareness, then that is wonderful. That is part of your practice. Yes. And that's really what uh, Flow State Collective stands for. It really is wonderful. And you know what? The sad thing is how many adults have lost that sense of flow. They had it as a child probably and they became adults and they just thought they had to do this job that you described, your corporate job. They they thought that had to be the way it was and they just lost that whole that whole emphasis on flow. So how do you help people get flow back? Yeah, good question. Well, the way I see it, and it's interesting that you, the, that you brought up the, the example of children. Now, my personal belief and my, 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 the way that I want to set my life up is that I never grow up. I want to be a child forever because a child doesn't live in fear. A child doesn't care about security. A child just wants to have adventure, live in the moment, have fun. And that, to me, is what life is all about. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I think that something happens to us. You know, it's a, it's a product of, of social conditioning when we, you know, start to grow up. And the whole concept of growing up is all about becoming responsible. And it's about creating a future for yourself that's secure. And that's all reasonable, except in our society, that seems to come hand in hand with getting a safe job, building up your retirement fund, doing what everyone else does, and really like stop being a child, stopping the play. Right. And I believe that, that our culture um, has this kind of dominant state of consciousness that, that is one of fear and insecurity and anxiety. And I think that this is manifested by all the problems that we see in our culture. You know, like stress and anxiety is way higher than it should be. Um, when you consider the standard of living that we've got in our culture, it's crazy to think that we've got a problem with stress and anxiety. Um, but we do. And the reason why we do is because we have this obsession or over-reliance on a state of consciousness that is basically like the fight or flight response. It's basically like you know, a, a state that is only designed to be a short, in short-term use. Now, what's the alternative to this state? Well, the alternative to this state is flow or a meditative state or a state of open awareness. So when we're operating in this state, I see it as just being our authentic state. And first of all, how do I get people into this state? Well, they have to be aware of it to start with. Like if you don't know what's possible, if you're not aware of what's possible, then how can you, how can you create that as a goal that you wish to walk towards. Of course, so, that makes total sense. And, and you have to identify that fear that's holding you back, right? Absolutely. I, I really, I really um, work hard to help people become aware that of, the, of their conditioning, of their programming. You know, we're, it, there's nothing wrong with conditioning and programming. Like we are, we are creatures that are conditioned. That's like, it's just, a, it's just a, the way that we are. You put us in an environment and we will absorb from that environment. But we can operate, we, we can um, have agency over that. We can make conscious choices through developing self-awareness. We can, we can take a, a bird's eye view of who we are how we've been conditioned. And, they, and therefore, from that place, we can choose what serves us 
and we can choose to recondition ourselves. And actually, like, you know, walking a spiritual path or, or uh, walking a, a path towards deeper awareness or a more conscious life is actually the process of, of reconditioning yourself deliberately. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, do you want to live life in fear and anxiety or do you want to live life in love and compassion? And the path of meditation is about connecting with a part of yourself that doesn't know what fear and anxiety is. It doesn't operate from that place. It's about connecting with a part of yourself that only knows the language of love. Right. So what right? you're saying then, that med- meditation, Jiro, is the first piece of the puzzle. Is that right? I believe so. I believe that it's the most foundational, fundamental, instrumental, and most powerful practice that humans can do. And it's no surprise to me that this is a practice that's ancient, but yet here we are in the 21st century, and we both, we both have podcasts that are built around the concept of mindfulness and meditation. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is amazing. Absolutely. And, and it's amazing to realize how many people shy away from it because they think it's something that's just too strange or unusual or too different because maybe, maybe it's something that the masses don't embrace. So we better not look into that, right? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a few reasons why, why people shy away from it. Uh, one of them is is just the pure fact that it's it's difficult to master. It's a simple concept, but it's but it's really difficult to keep on going. It's not like you see immediate rewards, and it's not as though you know exactly whether you know people don't know whether they're doing it right or you know it, it can be a difficult thing. The second thing is that I I feel like we live in an ironic age, and a lot of the talk, a lot of the energy, a lot of the dialogue around meditation, for better or for worse, has been um, painted with a very esoteric um, and very woo-woo brush. Um, you know, and, and, and also some people view it, put it in the whole religion category. Um, obviously, you and I both know that mindfulness meditation has nothing to do with religion. And in fact, if you were to trace uh, Buddhism, Buddhas, like the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. The Buddha was a guy who was interested in suffering and he studied his own mind and he found out that um, by releasing attachment that he could uh, release suffering. Now, he, there was no religion around that. He was simply, in a sense, a sort of self-educated psychologist. Um, so <laughs> that's the second thing. Like, There's nothing fluffy or woo-woo or esoteric about mindfulness meditation. We're talking about science, analysis, and re- really talking about um, the mind. And I think what's awesome about um, the time that we're living in, Bruce, is that we've now got science catching up to, to meditation. And we've now got some fantastic studies and research, um, research papers being put out there which are really affirming the scientific validity of a meditation practice. Yes, that's right. And that really makes a big difference to our world, the way our world exists. We, a lot of us just have to have that scientific approach so that we feel like it's a valid thing to be doing. And especially in the education system and in the health system that we have, certainly here in Canada, then they can embrace it because it's proven in science. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's sad in a way that we need to have the science to prove something, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. And um, if the, if yeah, the more the more science uh, that goes into this, it, it's 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 awesome because it's really going to lead people towards a path of of self awareness. And yeah. Because that's what mindfulness is all about. Absolutely. So, Jiro, tell us what what meditation looks like for you today. Do you do guided meditation? Do you do completely silent meditation? What does your meditation look like? Yeah, I have a a fairly varied practice. I I try and it's it's all mindfulness based meditation. I I haven't used guided meditations for a few years. I've, I've used my breath very much as a tool. Like I'm very, like, I guess my breath is really the cornerstone of my practice. Um, I use a range of breathing exercises. Some of these have come from the, the, the pranayama, the yoga tradition. Some have come through my experience as a freediver. But I basically use my breath as a tool to anchor me to the present moment and to um, bring my awareness to my body. Um, so my mindfulness, my, my meditation practice at the moment looks like um, 10 to 20 minutes a day. Um, and I will basically, I do seated meditation. I use a meditation stool um, because sitting cross-legged on the floor just, just like gives me pins and needles and all sorts of pain very quickly. Um, so I use a cool little stool. And um, I make sure that the same time, of, time in the morning, same time in the evening, it's very much part of my, my ritual. And um, I will close my eyes and I bring my awareness to my body. Um, I might do a quick body scan where I bring my awareness like uh, through from my feet up through my body. And then I simply rest my awareness uh, on my breath. And um, that's, that's, that's basically my practice. Well, I'm fascinated with so many different apps that are out there that are guiding people through guided meditation and through specific help. And I'm sure that there's a place for that. I'm sure it's really great. But a lot of time, I personally feel like it's kind of making mindfulness into something more complex than it really needs to be. What are your comments on that? Yeah, I agree, Bruce. And I would also go further than that to say that it can be like a, like a guided meditation app can be like giving a dummy to a baby or putting a kid on stabilizer wheels. Like at right. some stage, at some stage you've got to break away or you've got an attachment to that. And uh, really this is about not having attachment. It's about self-reliance. And um, many of the students that I've taught have developed this um, reliance on, 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 on my guided meditations and I've always, you know, I used to run a six-week mindfulness program. And on week three, I used to make sure that that was the end of guided meditations um, so that people could really um, bond with the simplicity of all that is going on in the present moment beyond someone else's voice. You know, there's so much in any given moment, Bruce, as you well know. We've got, we got sight, we've got sounds, we've got smells, we've got touch, we've got our breath. We've got our thoughts themselves. There's so many things that we can become aware of. Um, so do we really need the addition of that voice in our headphones? That's, that's the question that I've got. And yeah, you're right. Is it, is it actually harmful in that um, it's going to 
stop people from that self-reliance. So I see guided meditation as super beneficial and super valuable in the early stages. Right. And I would urge people to start to blend in non-guided meditations, you know, two or three or four weeks into your practice. Right. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I, I really love silent meditation, a lot of it, because I just feel like the other is getting in my way, you know, the, the guided part. I'm interested in your career and adventure, Jiro, and like I know you snowboard, I know that you surf. Tell us about some of the other really cool adventure activities that you're into. Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll give, I'll give anything a shot. Um, surfing and snowboarding are definitely, I guess, the, the the pillars. They're they're what take up most of my time. I mean, over the years, I've done windsurfing and kite surfing and rock climbing, and mountain biking and trail running and triathlons, and free diving. Um, free diving is basically the art of of uh, swimming underwater on one breath, and free diving is possibly the one of the most powerful awareness and mind training uh, exercises that I've ever done. Um, free diving is really something else, Bruce. Um, so basically, I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown on, uh-huh. on what free diving involves. Yeah, please do. So, yeah, so first of all, you have to train yourself to maximize your breath capacity. So there's a very physical component here, and this is, this is why a lot of free divers are very avid uh, yoga practitioners, because mm. you have to learn how to take a full breath. And a lot of people in our culture are breathing very shallowly. They're breathing from the top part of their lungs. They, they do these shallow chest breathing. Um, and really, we're supposed to breathe so that our belly expands before our chest even moves. Okay? Right, right. That's, that's the art of a full breath. And um, meditators uh, will be very familiar with this. So in freediving, you first of all have to learn how to breathe, how to take a full breath, because it's that one single full breath that's going to be your lifeline. That's what you're relying on for that entire time you're underwater. Secondly, be, once you get beyond the physical, you've got the whole mental aspect of it. So breathing, freediving is about redefining your limits. So the analogy I like to use is that um, if you haven't had a meal for, for three or four hours, you might get a hunger pang. You might, your belly might start making noises and telling you that it's time to eat. Well, it doesn't mean that you've got to eat. You could probably go for another three days before you got into serious trouble. Right, sure. And our, our, our breath is the same. Often we feel this urge to breathe um, when we hold our breath and we swim underwater. But that urge to breathe is very conservative, we can actually, that's, for, for, for professional freedivers, that initial urge to breathe is simply the indicator that the, that the, that the dive has really started. And um, you can go so far beyond what your physical body is telling you, but you have to develop the mental strength to overcome that physical signal. So that's really the second part of freediving, and it's got huge applications for, for, for everyday life. We can go further than, we, than our body is telling us we can. So in two days of training, Bruce, um, I, I increased my breath hold from one and a half minutes to four minutes, 45 seconds, just through learning how to breathe properly and how to overcome my physical urge to breathe. 
So one one and a half minutes to four minutes forty five seconds, which I thought was awesome. That is that is amazing, Jiro. That is awesome. Yeah, and the other thing is that when you when you actually dive into the ocean, and you're and you've just taken one breath, and there's no scuba tank, there's nothing. It's just you and the ocean and your breath, and it's extremely purifying and cleansing and invigorating and and it's so simple and it's it's a really beautiful practice of mindfulness you're just so mindful of your body and you're so mindful of your breath and it really is one of the most uh, meditative um, adventures experiences I've ever had Wow, and I just I just can feel a sense of it just hearing you talk about it, Jiro. It's it's amazing. Jiro, I've worked in bullying prevention for quite a while. I just want to kind of change the direction here. And yeah. I've seen how mindfulness can really make a huge difference with children and adults. Do you have a story about bullying and how mindfulness might have made a difference? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was actually... I didn't. Res- I was bullied a little bit as as a, as a kid, uh, but not too much. I guess I was always like the, uh, you know, I was a very athletic kid, so I was always on the sports team. And and my my age group at school was different in that we something unique happened. The the the, the computer geeks and the and the sports jocks kind of like we're all friends with each other. Oh. Um, so well, so good. it was awesome. Yeah, it was really great. But I had a, a different kind of bullying episode in my 20s. And this is like a relationship I had that went toxic. Uh-huh. And we both engaged in what later I learned was a form of like emotional bullying, not physical, mm-hmm. but a kind of emotional bullying, like emotional blackmail or really like picking each other's faults out. Right. And this was really the downfall of the relationship. Um, and and the relationship broke up after five years, and I had an, uh, an experience after that. We broke up, and I had two months of pure misery, pure pain, uh, but pure self-reflection and, on, on, in hindsight, amazing value. And I really asked myself huge questions about who I was and what part I played in that relationship, in that toxic relationship, what part I played in the, in the emotional bullying that we were both um, doing to each other. And I really, I guess, through the practice of mindfulness and through really a courageous refusal to shy away from reality, you know, I really stood my ground. And a lot of people were saying, Jiro, it's not your fault. It's just blah, blah, blah. And I was, I was unprepared to accept that I had no part to play in that. So I stood my ground and I sat in silence by myself, sometimes just for hours and hours on end in my bed mm-hmm. in depression. But I was, what I was doing was I was examining, mindfully examining my actions, um, my behavior, the words that I'd spoken, the habits that I had. And I was um, analyzing them instead of running away from them. And that ability to do that only comes through mindfulness because the habitual response in our very unmindful society is to run away from problems. Yes, it is. It's to run, yeah, it's to run away. It's to run away to in avoidance is to run away from what hurts us we run away to the bottle or we run away to distraction or we book a holiday or we go shopping or we get the chocolate out or we drink whiskey whatever there's there's we've got thousands of ways of to distract ourselves but mindfulness really gave me the tools and the power to confront myself and to really examine myself but only only from that 
you know, courageous um, confronting of myself, could I make the decisions and choices to change myself? And that's really what it's all about. Like, unless you know yourself, you can't change yourself. Right. And, and I might add that you, you faced it and you took responsibility, which is what a lot of us are not doing in our society, right? That whole responsibility piece. That's right. I took responsibility. Like, it wasn't pretty. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was hands down um, two months, two of my most painful months of my life. Um, but yeah, I took responsibility and you know what, Bruce, that was the launch pad for where I am at today. Um, after those two months, I, I look at it now as, you know, like the, the manure on the soil. Yeah, right. (laughs) It felt crappy at the time, but man, it led to some amazing growth. And after that, you know, after like facing up to myself and seeing who I was, I could make super conscious decisions about who I wanted to be. And man, I launched, I launched into whole new levels of performance and freedom into my life. I decided who I was going to be. I decided to love myself and accept myself for all the pain that I'd caused. And I decided to forgive myself. And, and that came through taking responsibility because you can't forgive yourself until you've taken responsibility for it. And if you can't forgive yourself, you can't love yourself. And if you can't love yourself, you can't love anybody else properly. And until you can do that, you can't start designing the life of your dreams. So that mindful um, decision to take responsibility was the foundation for where I am right now. Right. Powerful stuff, Gerald. Thank you so much for, you know, taking that, that vulnerable stance of sharing it with Mindful Tribe here today, because that's not easy to just, just open up and share to the world what you've done. Gerald, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30 second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Great question. I'm a big fan of a Vietnamese Zen monk author called Thich Nhat Hanh. And um, he's a wonderful author. And I recommend that anybody um, buys his book. The, the one that I'm holding in my hand right now is called Being Peace. His other one is called Miracle of Mindfulness. And they're both amazing. How has mindfulness affected your emotions or those of some of the people you work with? Mindfulness has allowed me to have this superpower to observe a thought before it's fully developed and to therefore make the choice of whether I want to transform that thought or let it run. And this has meant that I can um, abort thoughts or I can shift negative thoughts into positive thoughts or judgmental thoughts into more reasonable thoughts. And this has had a huge effect on my self-worth and my um, compassion that I feel for other people. Ah, you've talked quite a bit about breathing, Jiro, but tell us succinctly, how is breathing a part of your mindfulness practice? Breathing is the anchor to the here and now. Breathing is our life force. Breathing is, breath is everything. So, and when we breathe, we are actually when we breathe mindfully and deeply, we are actually putting ourselves into a different autonomic nervous state. So we're actually putting ourselves into a very calm and relaxed state. So deep breaths is a very powerful practice. Excellent. 
If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would it be? Cool. So I've already mentioned uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's two books. Yes. Um, so now I'm going to recommend um, another monk. He's, he's a French monk. He's called the happiest man in the world. <laughs> and he's called <laughs> Matthew Ricard. And I'm holding his book, which is called Happiness. And his other book is called The Art of Meditation. Both beautiful books. Awesome. What advice would you give a person who is new to mindfulness and would like to start using it in their life? I would say just do it and enjoy the practice. This is this is this is not a this is not an arduous task. This is not a a thing that you have to strive towards and have that energy of pushing pushing. This is about coming home to who you really are. This is catharsis and release and self-therapy and self-love. So just give it the energy of self-love and appreciation. Super. Jiro, I could talk with you all day about this stuff, but tell us, <laughs> tell us, what have you been working on? What have you been working on that is related to mindfulness and meditation? Cool. Well, I've been, I've been super busy with my website um, and my company, flowstatecollective.com. We have a podcast called the Flow State Performance Podcast, where I interview uh, people who have different takes on peak performance. And um, this might include neuroscientists. This might include uh, mindfulness and meditation teachers. It might include people that that just jump, throw themselves off cliffs to go base jumping. I'm really fascinated by altered states of consciousness. And I'm really fascinated. My, my work at the moment is focused around helping people free themselves so that they can live, live their dreams. So I've been working on a course, uh, which is a six-week program called the Flow State Freedom Formula. And this is going to be a very powerful course, which is rooted in mindfulness and self-awareness. And I want to give people the tools, the tools that I've been fortunate enough to learn through my time spent living in the East and also with my time spent learning about flow states, neuroscience and peak performance. And I want to give people the tools so they can develop a solid foundation of self-awareness upon which they can build their practices and their rituals, their mindset of mastery and go forth and live the most awesome lives they can. Wow. Jiro, this is just fantastic. And you know what? I'm totally fascinated to find out more about your program. And I know Mindful Tribe, you are too. How can we learn more about you, How what you do, and how can we connect with you, Jiro? Cool. So my website is www.flowstatecollective.com. All one word, flowstatecollective.com. And um, shoot me an email. Like Jiro at theflowstatecollective.com. I love receiving emails. And uh, yeah, you can check us out on Facebook as well. And if you're interested in that uh, flow state freedom formula, just go to the website and you'll see a lot of information about it there. Super, definitely interested. Jiro, it's been fantastic talking with you today. Thanks so much for sharing all that you have. And we'll talk to you again soon. It's been great. Thanks a lot for having me. Awesome. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.